Father God, we give you this time. God, we come together in this room coming from a lot of different places uh, in our own stories, experiencing a lot of different things. Um, undoubtedly, some here are really hurting right now, really struggling. And others of us perhaps are okay, and we're sick of being okay. So God, we ask that you would meet us here, and that you would take the word, the words in your scripture, and that you would just make them come alive to us, that you would speak through this time, uh, through the art, through the message, through your spirit, that you would penetrate hearts and reveal to us just what it is you want us to get this morning. God, we give you this time and open ourselves up to what you have for us. And pray all these things in your name. Amen. Is there anything more dangerous than a 13-year-old in love? I don't know if you can remember being a teenager in love, but I can. And as a dad to two little girls, it's one of the reasons my girls will not be dating until they're at least 25. Because uh, I remember teenage love. Like, I remember the depth of emotion and the raw passion minus the life experience and the wisdom. You know, it's like this dangerous, very dangerous combination. Um, Young love can be a very dangerous thing. Now, I don't know if you've ever seen somebody who's 75 and in love. Uh, I would say my grandma, who's not here this morning, is that. And they act like they're 13, right? And that's, that's like what love does, is it drives us crazy. It causes us to do things that normally a rational human being would never do, right? It causes us to, you know, go lie in a cornfield all night, look at the stars and open yourself up to somebody in a way that you normally uh, wouldn't do, right? It causes us to, to spend amounts of money that previously would have been unthinkable in pursuit of someone we love, right? It causes us to fly halfway around the world to see that person just a couple days earlier than we would have. I'm guilty of that one. Right? It causes us to buy wedding rings and put all this out there just a month after meeting one another, which I'm also, also guilty of. I wouldn't recommend that. Causes us to do all types of crazy things. Crazy things. Drives us to do things that a normal, rational human being uh, would never do. Love makes us crazy. You know, the Beatles were very famous for singing that all you need is love. Right? All you need is love. But that was right before they kind of all went their separate ways and started suing each other. So there's that. But the truth is, love is dangerous, because when it's good, there's nothing better, right? There's nothing more powerful that can propel us to do some pretty extraordinary things. Uh, but when it's off, um, few things are more destructive, right? When, when love turns dark, uh, there's very few things that hurt more deeply. Or if you've ever seen a couple who have gone through a very ugly divorce, you know exactly what I'm talking about. You know, and you see the, this couple that, and you watch them interact, and you see this uh, bitterness and this just resentment, and they're almost like just combustible when you get them in the same room together. And you look at them, and it's hard to imagine that there was a day when they were in love. You know, and that's one of the, the scary things about love is it seems sometimes that love and hate kind of go hand in hand, that they're just almost like a breath away from one another. That you can, you, you know, we talk about having a, a love-hate relationship with something. You know, like I have a love-hate relationship with tacos. Because uh, they taste amazing, but they just do a number, you know. <laughs> you know, and we, we see two people that they just, like, drive each other crazy, right? And, and you get them in the same room, and it's just like, 
she drives you crazy. You're like, why is she like that? And she looks at him as like, he is so obnoxious. Why is he like that? And then everybody sees it but them, and inevitably they start falling for one another. You know, you see two couple, uh, this couple that is just very much in love, and then in one moment, right, in one instant, this betrayal of trust, the same person that you're so very much in love with can become the absolute focus of your disdain. You know, love, hate is, I've heard it said that hate is like love having a bad day. You know, it's, that hate is kind of like love flipped upside down. It's a very dangerous, dangerous thing. You know, on one hand, I can understand why people buy into evolutionary theory. Uh, because evolution, I think, in many ways can help explain some things. Right? But what it doesn't help explain is why love exists. Because you would think that if evolution was the way that everything came into being, that humanity would have found a way to extinguish love a long time ago. You know, because you don't need love to reproduce. You just need sex for that. But love is something deeper. And the cost is so high that it amazes me that we still long for it. You know, just as a show of hands, let's just ask you, um, how many people here, actually, before I ask you this, let me just paint a picture for you a little bit more about the dark side of love. Right? The dark side of love can look a lot like hate at times. Other times, it's, it's that person that you know that, that gets into an abusive relationship, and you see them doing this time and time and time again, right? And everybody sees it, and you see them going into that relationship, and you're like, what are you thinking? Like, you deserve better than that, right? They're not going to treat you well, and you see this toxic mix of love and hate, and yet there they are, right? It's just a testament, really, to our soul's longing for intimacy, that if there's anything that we fear as human beings, it's being alone. Or that there are those that would rather experience a toxic form of love, a dark form of love, even if it involves abuse. Or the dark side of love, or it involves jealousy, or it involves heartache and brokenness. Or it happens when we open ourselves up to somebody in an intimate way and we bear our soul to them only to be rejected. And only to be pushed away by those that we care most about. It's a very dangerous thing, love. Just on a show of hands, how many people here would you say that there was perhaps one point in time in your story, maybe many points in your story, where you've experienced the dark side of love? Just out of curiosity. Most of us? Perhaps all of us? Well, here's another question. Uh, How many people in this room are either married or in a serious relationship, or you hope to one day perhaps get married or be in a serious, intimate relationship. Right again? All right, that's, that's a conundrum right there. Right, isn't it interesting that most of us have felt that hurt, that pain, that loneliness, perhaps that jealousy, right, the, the dark side of love, and yet, and yet, we still long to draw close to somebody, to, to love and to be loved in return, to, to be desired to be long, to belong, and to, to, to be cherished, to experience love. The longing within us for intimacy and for love is not going away. And so I think it's really important that we open up the scriptures and seek it out. That what is God's design in all this? And so this morning what I want to do is I want to take love and flip it right back side up. And to begin to look at God's design for this thing called intimacy. To look at love at its best. And to look at how life can be different. How it is meant to be different when we draw source, uh, draw close to the source of love. 
there was a guy in the scriptures named John, and John was one of the 12 disciples. And uh, he traveled with Jesus for three years for Jesus' entire public ministry as Jesus was teaching and performing miracles and ushering in uh, the kingdom of God. And John was there for all of it. And one of the things that is kind of interesting about John is as we read the scriptures, we find that, that John was Jesus' favorite, it seems. And I know God's not supposed to have favorites, but like when you read it, like it's just obvious that it, it seems that John really is Jesus' favorite. And Peter, Peter can tell. Right, because when Jesus says, hey, Peter, you're going to die a horrible death, right? Peter's response is like, it's not. Oh, no. Say it isn't so. Right? It, it, it's, well, what about him? What about John? Is he going to tell me it's going to be bad for him? You know, like, I, I can take it. Like, I can take a brutal death to tell me it's going to be bad for that guy. Right? You can feel it there, like the tension, the jealousy, uh, the dark side of love, in a sense. And so John was very close to Jesus, and he got a lot of special attention, a lot of time, close time with Jesus. And so it seemed oftentimes that John really absorbed a lot uh, of Jesus' passion and, and his teaching and his love and his burden uh, for people. And so it shouldn't surprise us that John begins to, to teach and to write a lot uh, about love and actually becomes defined as the disciple of love. That's what he becomes known for. Uh, and so what I want to do is, is look at a piece that, that John wrote this morning in 1 John uh, chapter 4. So if you have a Bible, if you have a smartphone, uh, version, you can get on a Bible there. 1 John uh, chapter 4. And he begins here uh, in verse 16. He says, And so we know and rely on the love God has for us. God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God, and God in them. For John, God and love were inseparable concepts. You could not have one without the other. They could not be separated. In order to understand one, you had to understand the other. You couldn't live in God and not live in love. Right? If you were experiencing love in some sense, you were experiencing part of the, the, the presence of God. Right? And he goes on to say in verse 17, This is how love is made complete among us so that we will have confidence on the day of judgment. In this world, we are like Jesus. At verse 18, there is no fear in love. There is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear, because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. Right? And so John begins by letting us know that one of the things that love does is it casts out all fear. And if this is all that love did... Uh, it would be enough. Right? God, when we enter into right relationship with him, he removes the heavy weight of fear on our lives. Right? So if you're, you know, perhaps you're here this morning and you've had uh, some rough experiences with religious people or organized religion in the past, right? people who have tried to guilt you and shame you, and, and what John is saying is that, you know what, God does not want to coerce you or manipulate you by fear or wrath. God wants you to experience the incredible freedom that comes in unconditional love. You know, but I would venture to guess that for many of us, that doesn't even really resonate because our experience oftentimes with perhaps with church, with Christianity, with Christians, uh, has been so far from that. Right? I know in knowing many of your stories uh, that there's a lot of history of abuse, right, deep hurts, 
deep wounds, myself included, often at the hands of religious people. And I wish I could say that that's a rarity, but it's just not. And I venture to guess for many of us that, uh, you know, we, we almost intrinsically know, we've seen that, sadly, throughout history, that religion has been used, sadly, as a tool to manipulate and control people. Right? We've seen this time and time and time again. Right? It's been used and abused more often than I care to admit. Right? Is it really any wonder that so many people struggle with organized religion? Right? When the history at times has been so brutal. Right? And what's John saying is, like, is beginning to point us to the reality that religion in and of itself, apart from God, is just as destructive as anything else. That religion leads to death, not life. And the weapons of choice traditionally for religion have been things like guilt and shame and fear. Right? But what John is saying is that although religion might do that, God doesn't. That that's not God's intention. That Jesus never came to found a religion. That was not his intention at all. But to free us, to free us from anything and everything that produces in us fear, including religion. And so the worst of corruptions, the worst of corruptions, right, whether it's Christianity, Islam, Buddhism, Catholicism, Hinduism, Judaism, Mormonism, or any other ism, right, is that when religion is created, that subtly communicates that God withholds his love. You know, that, that in order to earn that love, you have to submit to the system. Because the truth is, I mean, nothing could be further from the truth. And the irony of this is that the only reason that this works is because you and I have this intrinsic longing within us for love. But because of what most of us have experienced, we've come to assume that all love is necessarily conditional love. And so that's what religion does. Right? It just creates and multiplies more and more rules. And the focus becomes, this is what you do, and this is what you don't do. Right? And this is what God has said, and so, you know what, just to keep it safe, we're going to keep multiplying the rules. But I'll give you an example. I've shared before, you know, that I grew up in a staunch Baptist church in rural Minnesota. Uh, very old congregation, pretty conservative congregation. One of the, and one of the jokes about Baptists, you know, is that they're really against dancing. Like, of all things to have a vendetta on, it's dancing. And so the joke goes, you know why Baptists are so against premarital sex? It's because it might lead to dancing. Right? I heard that a lot growing up. And there's some, there's some truth to that. So when I was a kid, like I was taught over and over and over that sex outside of marriage is wrong. Right? And so, obviously, no dancing. Which I didn't, I didn't understand at first. Right? And so kind of the connection was is they, they would... They would say, you know, look, here's how it is. Dancing involves listening or perhaps singing to songs that have been written by God-forsaken hip swingers like MC Hammer and Salt and Peppa. <laughs> Sorry, I love the 90s. I already told you that. <laughs> right? And so we're listening to these very sensual lyrics. And then it also involves, you know, touching uh, another guy, another girl very closely, swaying back and forth. And it awakens the appetite, the sexual appetite. And of course, the next thing then is that you act on that sexual appetite and, and then sex happens. So, vis-a-vis, -vis, sex and dancing are the same thing. And that's essentially what religion does. And, you know, had I known better, I just would have like, pointed to David and, and said, hey, like, what do, you, what do you do with David, who the scriptures say danced before the Lord? And it was holy dancing, worshipful dancing. Uh, 
But I didn't know that, you know. So obviously, you know, dancing is not a sin, unless it's line dancing, of course, which is clearly a sin. Yeah. I can feel it. God's moving in this space. But we were taught premarital sex, sin, dancing, sin, because they took the liberty of saying, look, this is what God says, and so we're just going to clarify that for you and kind of keep it back a little bit, and this is what this means, this is what this means, so no MC Hammer, no salt and Peppa, you know, no Lady Gaga, you know, um, that's the way that it works. And looking back, it, it's kind of funny, you know, it's kind of funny to laugh about, and, and it was kind of silly, um, but the truth is, like, uh, this happens over and over and over again. Whenever you have a religious culture, a religious environment, um, this is what happens. And this is exactly what was happening in Jesus' day, is that God's people, Israel, had been given the Torah. And the Torah outlined for them uh, what God desired of his people, what his vision was for his people, like what it meant to honor God. But what ended up happening is all the religious experts had taken it upon themselves to define all these things that just aren't clearly defined in the scripture. So it's the same kind of thing now in Christianity, like we have issues that Christians disagree about because it's not so clear in scripture, right? So you've got Christians on opposite sides of issues like drinking, dancing, um, different ways that, you know, God might work. And so what the religious experts and what religious people tend to do then is they want clarity where there is none. And so they keep adding rules, adding rules, adding rules. And so by Jesus' day, by that time, it was very common knowledge that there were 613-plus commands that were a part of the Torah, the law. 613 commands. Imagine that for a minute, trying to live under 613 commands. Like if you committed one to memory every single day, it would almost take you two years to memorize them all. And so Jesus shows up on the scene, and this is part of the reason that Jesus was sent, was to bring clarity where there really was none. Right? And Jesus is really ticked off because what we find throughout the scriptures is that God is very passionate about ordinary people. Like God is, dreams a life and an experience for every one of us. And it's not just for pastors and priests and saints. Right? It's for the little guys, for every single one of us. And so he steps in, he's very, very angry. And, and what he does is he begins to deconstruct the religiosity of the religious fanatics who had made it so incredibly hard for people to connect with their creator which is what Torah and, and what God desired uh, for his people. And so Jesus steps in, and uh, this is what he does. He actually introduces a new way of understanding our faith, of understanding what it means to live in right relationship with God. He takes 613 commands, and he takes them down to two. And so one of the religious experts comes to Jesus, and he wants to trap Jesus in a theological debate, right? So in other words, he wants him maybe in today's terms to get in an argument about politics or, you know, something like that. Uh, perhaps, you know, say which denomination is right or whatever. And so in Mark 12, 28, it says this. This guy comes to Jesus. He says, of all the commands, Jesus, talking about the 613, which is most important? Which is most important? It's a pretty sticky question. Right? Because if he answers, he could get it wrong, and it'll erupt into a big religious fight, because that happens sometimes. Um, not today, you know, but it happens sometimes. Or if he, answer, if he doesn't answer, then he's just, you know, that's just lame. Uh, so, but Jesus is ready. And what he does is he begins to deconstruct their ideas about what it means. And he says this in verse 29. He says, the most important one is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. 
And the second is this. Love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. And so Jesus takes this very complicated religious system. He takes 613 of these commands that have been created by religious people. He says, no, 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 no. This is it. In order to understand the Torah, in order to understand the scriptures, you've got to understand that all of these are just pointing to the same thing, that every command is either about loving God or loving people. And if you fail on loving God or loving people, you're missing it. Right? That the essence of what it means to be a person of faith and to be in right relationship with God is to love God and love people. That it is that simple. And if you lose that, you lose everything. So John continues in verse 19, and he says this. He says, we love because he first loved us. Whoever claims to love God yet hates a brother or sister is a liar. For whoever does not love their brother and sister whom they have seen cannot love God whom they have not seen. And he has given us this command. Anyone who loves God must also love their brother and sister. Which is why it says in 1 John 3.11, he says, For this is the message you heard from the beginning, that you should love one another. Right? This was central to what it means to be connected to Christ. And so in verse 14, he says, for this is how we know. This is how we know that we have passed from death to life. This is it. This is how we know if we love each other. Anyone who does not love remains in death. Anyone who hates a brother or sister is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life residing in him. Right? So, G- so John is saying, look, here's the evidence that, that you have life in God. Right, that you actually love each other, not just people who are like you, not just people who agree with you, that you have love other people. Right? What he's saying is, like, don't go around telling people that you love God if you don't love people. Please, don't go around telling people that you're a Christian if you're going to be a jerk and refuse to love people sacrificially. But the measure, he's telling us that the measure of our spiritual maturity is this. That this is God's measuring stick. That anyone who does not love remains in death. But that when we surrender to God, right, when we resolve to love him fully, that we are finally free to experience intimacy in all its fullness for the first time. That that is how we were created to experience that. This is what our soul longs for. And that it's expressed in our lives by being increasingly marked by love. That this is what connects us to God. But that this is something that repeatedly moves us to action. So you and I, we have an incredible capacity within us, both for good and for evil, right? both to love and to hate. Because you and I, Genesis tells us that you and I were created in the image of God. And so each and every one of us bears the fingerprint of God in our lives. And it is in that, that divine, image-bearing part of ourselves right, that we have this in us, this capacity to love and to love greatly. That's the reason why, by the way, whether you're a Christian or not, right, whether someone is Christian or not, why they have the ability right, to do things like living selflessly and extending compassion and extending mercy and or giving of ourselves generously and loving passionately, that this is really just a reflection of our creator. The reason we can do that is because we serve a good God, and we've been created in his image. That when we love, that that is a reflection of our creator, at least in part. 
right? And so we have like this culture of love, and we love a lot of different things, right? right? We love so many things. We love art. We love film. Right? We love movies, friends, mountains, football. Love a lot of different things, right? The French love their wine. The Germans love their cars. The Italians love their lattes. The Chinese love their feng shui. The Japanese love their sushi, and Brazilians think they love pretty much everybody and everything. Right, but we have this incredible capacity to love, and that even in loving the most meaningless things, it's just a reflection of within us this great capacity for love. But the problem, the problem, however, is that we are fundamentally broken apart from God. And I know we don't like talking about sin a whole lot. Right? Some of us have had very bad experiences in the past of churches abusing this conversation about sin, but the sin... The power of sin in our lives is very, very real. I mean, let's not even have a religious conversation. Let's just have a human conversation. You're messed up, and I'm messed up. Right? I know, because we're both human, that you've made mistakes in your past, probably mistakes that you really wish you'd take back, and mistakes that have not only hurt you, but at times have really hurt other people. And that's one of the things that unites us right, in, as humanity is how screwed up we are apart from God. Right? Sin just levels the playing field is all it does. But it's in that, that's why Christ came, is to step into that brokenness and that sin. And sin breaks that divine image-bearing part of ourselves, and it creates in us an equally great capacity for evil. Right? And if you've been following the news at all this week, we got a really vivid picture of the longing for intimacy gone bad and the power and destruction of sin and what's been going on at Penn State. It's been pretty heart-wrenching. I don't know. I'm guessing we have a lot of football fans here, or at least people who know what's going on with football, because we are in Lincoln, Nebraska. You know, but I've always had just the utmost respect for Penn State and Joe Paterno. You know, uh, he has just been one of those staples, right, that has just shattered coaching records for decades. And so when this all came out, at first, I'll be honest, I didn't believe it. I thought it was just a load. You know, that, that there's somebody spreading lies and, and that this cannot possibly be true. But as the details came out, I mean, they just got more and more horrific. I don't know if any of you read, like, the grand jury report. You know, but the short of it is, is that, you know, Sandusky was raping children. And that it happened at times on campus. And that uh, one of the assistant coaches, who was a grad assistant, actually walked in, saw it. He reported it to... Joe Paterno, who's head coach. Joe Paterno had a conversation with the athletic director, and every single one of them chose at that point to say nothing, to cover it up, even though there's a legal responsibility, obviously, to report something like that and protect those kids. But nobody did. Nobody did. And what happened, you know, over the last 10 years then, is that more kids ended up getting abused and victimized. And now we have all this this whole institution, with all types of people that are caught up in it. And, and the report talks about them drugging some of these kids. Um, that uh, The latest that I read was that they were actually pimping out some of the children to donors. I mean, we're talking just like absolutely horrific, horrific stuff. You know, and after, after just reflecting on it this week, I mean, is it even, I mean, is it even possible to reject the reality that there is something profoundly broken within us. 
But that there is a capacity within us to do things that are unthinkable. You know, and I wish I could say that this is just an isolated incident, but the truth is, as I was reflecting on it this week, I mean, this kind of stuff has always happened. Right? In the Old Testament, we see it evident in cities like Sodom and Gomorrah. This kind of stuff was happening all the time. In the New Testament, even after Christ came, right, we see stuff like this in the city of Corinth, and even in the Corinthian church. You know, just deep, deep sin, sin that tears us apart. And it's a sin that's ultimately all about self at its core. You know, I heard one of the ESPN commentators, and he said it really well. He said, I just cannot think all that was taken away by the selfishness that went on at that university. And at, at its essence, that's what it was. Right? And, I, and I don't know like the motivations. I don't know if it was fear of losing a job, right? getting knocked off the career path. I don't know if it was uh, you know, fear of uh, losing money. Like, I don't know if it was uh, a fear of those who were in power. But the one thing that we do know, that in the case of every one of these things and every single person that wasn't involved, that ultimately... Each man that was involved, his primary concern was for himself. Because all the, the greatest tragedy is all it would have taken was for one man to step up and say, I don't care what it costs me. I'm going to do the right thing. I'm going to protect these kids and come out with it. And it would have not just saved the, you know, saved the, protected the one boy, uh, but all the boys have been victimized since then. All it would have taken for one man to lovingly step up. And what John is saying here is that, look, that's what love does, right? That it, it pushes aside all of our feelings of entitlement, what we think the world owes us, what we think that uh, we deserve, right? That it pushes aside fear of what others might say, how others might react to us, right? Push aside the consequences of our actions and how it might end up really not being that great for us in the end in order to love other people more than we love ourselves, to sacrificially step up. That that's what it looks like to be swept up in God's love. And that moves us to action. This morning, I wonder how many of us, if we were really honest, if we were to take a look at our lives, that we would, if we looked at the sin in our lives, I wonder how many times that the sin in our lives is really oftentimes not so much sins of commission, but sins of omission. Just like at Penn State. Different circumstances, same result. Right? Perhaps not so much the sin of constantly doing the wrong things, but refusing to do the right thing for fear of what it might cost us. And what John does is he points us back to Jesus time and time and time again. And he says this, that this is how we know what real love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. That we love because God loved us first even amidst our sin and our brokenness and our shame and our embarrassment, that God steps into that and loves us anyway. And that without this selfless love in our lives, without love and action, that we will continue to remain in death. That no effort to fulfill that longing for intimacy that every single one of us has will satisfy. No relationship, no religion, nothing. That without being in right relationship with God, we will continue to experience the dark side of love over and over and over again. And he points us back to the paradox of the cross, which is where it always comes back to. It's where we have to start. That it is in giving our life away that we actually find it. 
or that is in losing our life in loving God and others that we begin to discover the intimate love that our soul longs for. Perhaps this morning you are here and as you look at your life, you see a whole lot of remnants all over the place of this intimate, this longing for intimacy, but far too many instances that you even want to count of just experiencing over and over and over the dark side of love. And what the scriptures point us back to time and time again is that if we are to experience that intimacy that we long for, that our soul will never give up on, that it's got to start there and being swept up in God's love for us and beginning to move out with that love. That what we desire in here will never be right until we lay this down and begin to love here with our hands. If you would, would you bow with me in prayer? Now this time, I, I want to do something that we don't do very often here, and I want to give those who are here an opportunity to respond to the message of the cross. Perhaps you're here right now, and you wouldn't have articulated it this way before walking in here this morning, but you sense that there's something profoundly wrong inside. That God is is calling you to something else. That what you've been doing up until now is not working. And I want to give you a chance to respond to that in repentance and allowing God to do what he needs to do in your heart and in your soul so that you can begin to experience the life and the intimacy that your soul longs for. And so if that's you, I want to just give you the chance to pray with me as we lay our hearts and our souls down at the feet of the cross. If you would, just repeat after me in your own heart. Father God, I am messed up. My soul is broken. Something within it that I can't put my finger on. And God, I may not understand all of the implications or everything that the Bible says, but there's something about this that rings true inside of me. And so God, I come before you and lay what I have down at your feet. I don't know how much I have to give, but I give it all to you. Do what you will inside of me. My life is yours. Father God, I pray for those in this room who are wrestling with the dark side of love, who are experiencing various levels of brokenness and hurt and rejection, perhaps feelings of abandonment and abuse. And God, I ask that you would meet them in the midst of their pain and their woundedness, God, and bring healing. And God, as we come before you and we lay down the sin, uh, perhaps that we have in our lives, God, if we would lay it down at your feet at the foot of the cross, God, we ask that you would take that they begin to transform our, our hearts and our minds in the way that we understand love, God. That you would take away that just constant urge to live for ourselves. And 
give us the courage and this overflow of love to love others selflessly, to put their needs and hopes and dreams and desires before our own. And God, I ask that as we do this as a community, as a church, God, that you would raise up a people through whom you will transform this city. God, we ask, even now, as there are churches meeting all over this city, God, that you would be raising up a generation that desires more than anything else for your name to be lifted up, for you to be loved, for this city to be loved with the gospel. And God, we ask that you would flip it upside down. God, we ask, as human as we are, as broken as we are on our own, that God, you would use the people in this room to accomplish extraordinary things, that as we seek to love others selflessly, that God, you would move and do something extraordinary. So Father God, as we come before you now in worship, we ask that you would be here, that our offering, our words, our hearts, be a sweet fragrance to you, God. We pray all these things in your name, God, all God's people said. Amen.